interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, today is uh, January 12th. I am really wound up today. We uh, we had something happen yesterday, which I was hoping wouldn't happen, which was the public health emergency uh, was, was re-upped under the radar screen for the most part. There was a little bit of news coverage relative to that situation. And Don, can you just bring Stacy in for a minute here while I talk about this? Hi, Stacy. So I also want to say Hi, while yeah. Stacy's there, you take a look at her name. So I, I like preparing for interviews. So I talked with Stacy twice just to make sure I've got the name pronunciation correct. So I mean, we're going to go with Stacy O, but I'm going to try it right now. And Stacy, you let me know. So Stacy Ogrensek. Did I get it? That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. That's well, I'm still going to go with Stacy O so I don't screw it up. But anyway, I'm. I'm bringing Stacy in right now, and both of us are on the screen because the public health emergency is what killed my daughter Grace and Stacy's husband Ryan. And the reason I say that is we've been under a public health emergency since January 27th of 2020. So now we're into this 36 months. The public health emergency specifically provides bonus money to hospitals to follow murder protocols by the NIH that literally kill people. And Stacy's story is significantly worse than Grace's. When you hear that, if you're not awake to what's going on in hospitals after you hear her story, uh, you don't have your brain turned on. The day before the public health emergency was re-upped on January 10th, the fake news was telling us that the, you know, if you're paying attention to it, that the public health emergency will be renewed tomorrow one more time because of the recent surge in COVID cases. Just think about the propaganda here. They're keeping the COVID narrative alive in order to kill us. And I, I can't stress this enough. And I keep doing interviews. Stacy has been gracious enough to be my guest today to share her story. And we hope that you'll wake up. So I, I do want to transition as I, I always like to start these interviews with something about grace. And uh, so I want to ask the question. And obviously, I can't get an answer because I'm talking to myself right now. But on January 8th, 1935, does anybody know what happened? So now, Don, you can bring the two pictures of Grace up. That'll be your clue. So I'll give you a second. All right. So now you got the first picture of Grace. All right. What can you bring up the second one then, Don? All right. So that's your clue. January 8th, 1935. What happened? And the answer is Grace was a, a, a whiz at Elvis trivia. That was Elvis's birth date. And uh, so, Don, you can play the clip of Grace dancing with Elvis now. Touching me, touching you.
That's tough to tough to watch. You know, I get asked a lot, why don't you get back to life? And, uh, you know, this is my life. When you have a kid like this, what do you do when you know that there's a serial killer that's out there still murdering people? Um, you, don't, you don't give up. And anybody that that has had somebody like Stacy and me that has has been murdered, you know, you don't give up. James 4, 17 says, tells us specifically, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for, for them. So if I stop now, if Stacy stops now, it would be sin for us. Uh, Grace is dead because I was programmed to believe that hospitals are safe zones. Uh, obviously, um, I was lied to. The hospitals are not safe zones. And now I've uh, become awake to the reality that they lie, they don't care about people, and they do not follow the rule of law. Uh, those of you who have been following Grace's story, you know that I've done about 25 interviews with a Holocaust survivor, Vera Sheriff. Uh, Vera is actively warning the world that history is repeating itself literally right in front of our eyes and the medical profession is leading the way. Uh, the theme I want to communicate today is that history is repeating itself and you can help stop stop it if you believe what we're sharing. So Don, I want you to play the, the first clip from Caring Corrupted. Uh, this is about people getting wise to hospital killings. Uh, then I'm gonna do um, an introduction to Stacy, and we'll get into the, the interview. As knowledge of the gassing of patients became widespread, the decision was made to end the T4 euthanasia program in August 1941. This, however, did not end the killing of patients. The children's euthanasia program continued unabated until the end of the war. After the end of the T4 program, Physicians were granted permission to provide a merciful death to any person they deemed to be suffering. These killings, which took place at many hospitals throughout the Third Reich, were known as wild euthanasia or decentralized euthanasia and were carried out on an individual basis rather than by gassing. Patients, usually selected by physicians but killed by nurses, were administered overdoses of sedatives. More people died in wild euthanasia than in T4. Why did the nurses follow orders to kill? We do know that the doctors were the ones who signed the certificates that said whether the child was to live or die. It was the nurses who carried out the, the killings. The doctors didn't necessarily carry out the killings themselves. They may have dictated who was to die, but it was the nurses who carried out the killings. Okay, um, that's pretty tough to swallow, but I want to connect some dots. You know, Stacy and I are in the hospital killing lane. We're exposing the murders taking place in hospitals. As the clip we just listened to explains, as people wake up to hospital killings, the government will keep using the medical field to implement their euthanasia program. And I'm going to explain, this is happening today, folks. Uh, history is literally repeating itself in real time. On November 23rd, just six weeks ago, the Health and Human 
Services Secretary signed into law the next level. And so you remember when Obamacare passed, everybody had a fear of death panels and Congress ended up rejecting the death panels. Well, the Health and Human Services Secretary on November 23rd implemented death panels again. And he, he can do this under law because he has been given complete power when there's a public health emergency. In March, so coming up here in two months, it's predicted that 100 million people will be on Medicare. And that's the goal. You think that, oh, that's they want to get that happening so that they get the votes. And this is not about political gain. We already know the cabal controls the election. So we're not talking about getting votes for elections. Hitler was able to successfully convince people that certain members of society were burdens and they needed to be murdered. The Medicare Medicaid system today accounts for 39% of the federal budget. That number is increasing. History is repeating itself. The propaganda has normalized euthanasia and these burdens to society, the people on Medicare and Medicaid need to be removed. Right now, the UK is euthanizing 2000 people a day. Uh, Canada has a medical assistance in dying that they have the acronym made, that they have now normalized this idea of euthanasia. And if you think this isn't coming to the United States, take a look at this November 23rd uh, law that the Health and Human Services Secretary put in place. I mean, it literally brings back death panel, panels to reduce the cost of Medicare and Medicaid. Okay, so now we'll bring Stacy back on, Don, and I want to informally introduce her. So I met, I met this young lady on April 7th, and I met her because she decided to come to Grace's rally on April 8th. We had a memorial rally outside the hospital. Uh, her husband, Ryan, entered the Belmont Hospital. Did I pronounce that right, Stacy? Uh, Beaumont. Beaumont, thank you. In Dearborn, Michigan in November of 2021, he was given remdesivir against his consent, placed on a ventilator against his consent, even though his oxygen level was at 98%. Stacy's gonna tell the details of, of the story, so I'm not gonna go into a lot, but you know, ultimately, uh, Ryan lost his life on January 23rd, 2022, and Stacy was enough and still is in the fight that she chose to come and participate and share uh, the story of Ryan's death uh, at Grace's rally. Uh, these two have been childhood sweethearts. Don's gonna play a number of, or put up a number of pictures of the two of you while you're talking, Stacy. They've been together over half of her life. They were married 13 years and they were together for 15. So. Uh, Stacy, that being said, can you tell the world a little bit about Ryan? Um, well, yeah, we, we met when we were uh, 15 years old in a private and uh, uh, we were just best friends from the very start. And uh, he always knew that we'd end up together <laughs> and that we'd end up married. Uh, it was always just, he'd always say three more years that we met when we were in love. Seventh grade, and so you know, I'd say realistically that I wasn't going to get married in three years, uh, but that was what he always said. Uh, later, we got engaged, and and then uh, and then married two years after a long time. Um, but uh, so he yeah. kept trying to push things. He kept trying to push off. I the actually marriage. was the one pushing it back. <laughs> I was the one 
pushing it back. Um, and we just went on our, we did our careers and got that started first. Um, but you know, where we would be years later, I probably would have just, you know, married really young. Um, I, we, we waited, but we're still together. It was like, we just, we, we always knew that we'd end up together. There was never a separation in our minds. We never thought somebody else would be responsible for separating us. So yeah, that was my other half. He's very business oriented, like I am, and and uh, able to start his own business. He uh, went uh, had his own insurance. Insurance, so proud of it. He was starting to become very well known throughout the nation with having agents in other states. Proud of him, and he was just getting that started when his life was stolen. Did actually go well, in on the twenty third, and he died on January third just to correct something from the very beginning the dates he went in on the hospital on the 23rd of november but he died on january 3rd january 3rd okay thank you well let's walk through what happened tell tell the story i went into beaumont hospital in dearborn michigan and on, on november 20th he was starting to feel slight chest tightness he was sick for like two weeks uh, roughly around then, he started, started feeling like, like flu-like symptoms, um, and then towards the congestion. And uh, he le learned from me as being he knew that when I, I would have breathing problems, I would go in and they'd give me a steroid shot, oxygen. Uh, so that was what he thought he could go in and do. And I was very nervous, wondering if they were still using them there uh, if they were turning everything into because it was pretty uh, it was quiet uh, on the hospital front on the news and our really hearing much about, about it um so i just i didn't know i didn't know if they would do that he kept telling so me you were you were already paying, you were paying attention to what was going on in hospitals already and then did he go in through the emergency room he did he did uh, okay. he talked me into it was being paranoid uh, that he could refuse any treatment he didn't want. He told me that he knew to say no to remdesivir. He knew to say no to a vent. Uh, Primary agents, so he's seen what the outcomes were to those things. Uh, so he knew that the insulin was a 20% bonus to use remdesivir. Um, so he did that drug. He knew to stay away from that. Uh, so when he he went in, he had told me that they said that's, and next thing you know, they were talking COVID protocols. So first in um, about testing them for COVID, it was just, now we're on COVID protocols. And given, they actually, well, I'll take that back because they didn't tell me that they had him on remdesivir, watching his kidneys closely. I should say that. They were saying they were watching his kidneys closely, that there were signs of distress. And I was asking them, well, why is it, um, did, is there, did you guys give him remdesivir? And they would tell we don't have that in front of us. It's not in his records. We'll have, to have a doctor call you back. Uh, give me the runaround every time I would ask. But then I'd call again, and they again, they would tell me. And it wasn't until we reached the weekend that I had called, and I got a different nurse and I said to that 
nurse, I said, hey, you know, I heard about this drug called remdesivir of purpose. And I said, it is, uh, I heard that it's supposed to help patients if they have COVID, um, if my husband can get that, or is, has he been given it already? So I kind of dressed up combative, like, how dare you give it to him? Did you give it to him? So, yeah. so when I did that, she, oh, well, let me look, check in his medical record. Oh yeah, he was given that as soon as he came in here. Um, so to that drug, they still did it. So you 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 were you really used <clears throat> their what they were doing against them by by calling it some you know acting naive, and then you were able to get the truth through acting naive about the situation. Correct. Wow. Yeah, and then. Uh, from getting nowhere prior, wondering why is all of a sudden are we in kidney distress uh, when he went in? Because when he went in, his oxygen was ranging from 89 to 94%. So most of the time, if his oxygen was normal. Um, so how did we go from going in there first to uh, into kidney distress? So I had a feeling. I knew he went in. I told them to make sure they noted that he was not, not to get severe. We are not consenting. I think I, I even called it Becklery as well, just to make sure that, hey, we, we, and we said, nope, we do, do not want that drug. Um, yeah, and I still did it, did it anyway. And my an IV in his arm, he didn't even know that they did an IV. Um, so that was like, I mean, obviously, he was sedated. No one sleeps through an IV. Uh, even the toughest part, you wake up. So yeah, he, he uh, woke up and found an IV had been done, and so we were there because they started that right away. So then, what was the when you found out the truth relative to remdesivir? What was the next step that you and Ryan took? So Ryan was still able to converse with you at this time, right? Yeah, but by the time he had found out about what he was being at the last dose they gave him five doses uh, well like three days of it which i learned usually a double dose and then so it equal to about five doses uh, um <laughs> so it was kind of the damage was already done it it took about approximately for him to go into like renal failure uh i don't think he ever was aware they pushed the vent prior to that um and uh, the day that they were pushing, Jim was doing really well. He was staying in the upper 90s. And he was telling me that it was a step-down step unit, um, that he's probably going to go home in about a week, that he was doing so much. He told me that he was having his oxygen off his face and wearing two face masks. And he was sitting in a chair, getting up and moving, because you need to keep those, you need to keep moving when you have pneumonia in your lungs. And then he, uh, uh, then I had a doctor call me first. They called me at two in the morning and trying to go on a vent. And I told him I wasn't going to do that because his oxygen was doing fine. He told me that, that I should convince him because he needs to have, give his body rest. And uh, that that's never been a reason that we vent, ventilate patients. And that what we was the time frame. What was the time frame of the first vent request? Mm -hmm. I think he really brought that up till that day that they did it. 
Um, what what was the in the in the you know from the November to oh, January? Yeah. What was uh, when was no, it? November thirtieth. They went in on the twenty or did I say twenty third? Twenty first. I think it was. Uh, look at my notes again. <laughs> I think it was the twenty first. Uh, went in on the twenty first. Sorry, and he was vented on the thirtieth. So he survives the remdesivir. He's got kidney damage, but he's doing well enough that he believes he's going to come home in a week. So, I mean, he must have been pretty yeah. strong to survive that remdesivir um, protocol. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he was uh, no problems prior. And the only thing they were telling us prior to the event was that it was just stress that was, and that they were watching it closely. That was their words. After he was, they started to push for the vent. Um, they called me up at two in the morning. Oh, I, I told Ryan about it. I said, "Hey, they're trying to push for you to go on a vent. Let you don't let them lie to you and say that I agreed to it." Um, I told his family about about it, and it, uh, to which my husband responded to everybody like, "No, I'm not going on no vent." I brought it up earlier today and i told them that no way and heck am i going on a vent don't bring it up again and then he told me that he had said that and then i was talking to him again in the evening and he had sent me a screenshot of his oxygen and it floating around that 97 98 percent and um i was like in the upper 90s and he said yeah it's been like that for a while so i'm doing better and they were we're talking about him them pushing the vent and he said that he told him he's not going on it and and then the doctor had called me on the phone and the same doctor that i needed to convince my husband to go on the vent to give his body rest and again we had that, oh, i ain't gonna do that his oxygen is fine i'm not gonna tell someone who's improving to go on on a ventilator and that's when he said well to be honest with you ma'am we told your husband that we we're going to vent him with or without his consent and yeah i was i was very just pause for a minute and then i said well, well um that's illegal and, it, and he slammed the phone down and then i couldn't get a hold of my husband at all anymore all, all communication just stopped uh, i tried calling that all the nurses were in isolation that nobody could talk to me. The doctors were busy. I was, there was no answer. I was texting him, uh, telling him what happened. No answer. It wasn't until um, they called me back two hours later. It's the same doctor to let me know hours ago. And I asked him what time that was, and he gave me a time. But my husband was texting me. Um, he didn't know that I had a screenshot of it. His oxygen. I mean that, that my husband's oxygen was. So I think he, I think it was that he said he was in forty percent consented to do, to doing it. So he was just flat out, out lying because it didn't matter as proof. So then, once he was on the vent, did he stay on the vent the entire time until his death? He did. Oh my god. He did. I mean they. Yeah. And they. they uh, I wanted them to be able to trach him when. We got to a point because they still didn't let, let me up for about a week after. Um, and now his kidneys were in total, total shutdown. He had 6% kidney function. Uh, fluid 
did really bad. Um, and and uh, when I got up, up there to him, phones, first thing I asked for was his cell phones so nothing would happen to them and his wedding ring. When I got his uh, uh, phones, I looked and all communication to everyone he was texting that day hung up with me. So, so I know that the, and it, he, he did put it in a text to another friend that it's bringing up the sedative to help him feel better. So now I know that they were preparing him for the event. Oh my gosh. So then. And he didn't how, understand. What was the, so as far as visiting him during this, this entire time, how did that work out for you? Uh, uh, they would not let me up there until later, um, even though I've had COVID, I have immunity to it. Um, they say for me to be on a COVID floor, but after he was vented and a patient advocate, um, a week after he was vented, they allowed me in. Um, and now I can sit on a COVID, no PPE, sit next to him, doctors in and out, you know, of his room that and suddenly it's not a risk no more that he, he can't talk. Um, so that's such a joke advocate for the patient completely um and so when i got in there he opened it um and i was shocked that he had facial movement because they had him on the paralytic the vent down his mouth and he opened his eyes and i asked him if he did which i was so happy to know that he was okay it wasn't as bad as what they were scaring me into believing so he raised his eyes eyebrows and then I told him that I loved him and I was fighting up again let me know he like he was saying it back um and then uh I asked him if so I said Ryan can I ask you some questions can you raise your eyebrows up for yes and down for no and as soon as the nurse that was in the room was leaving and heard me say that she hurried back to his mind more comfortable and I thought she was going to do something with pain meds but instead she did the sedation and he was and I didn't know it then but that that would have been the last time I'd speak to my husband if I would have known that I would have fought more to keep that conversation going I uh I'm so thankful you're willing to share these details so people can get a grip as to what's going on you know I I know from talking to you you have an overwhelming amount of evidence. Can you um, can you speak to that? Is that okay to talk about during this um, this interview? Yeah, I uh, beside him, I started to pay attention to what he was on, uh, uh, which was very little. And I take for asthma, uh, stuff for kidney dialysis, blood pressure meds, pretty much it besides pain meds and sedation. So I uh, I looked at it and I looked at this nurse and I said that's on this protocol you're forcing on him that's going to help him come off of this vent. And she looked at me and said, "Well, nothing, but it's all we're allowed to give him due to politics controlling our." And I said, "So you're telling me that you're going to let a 41 year old healthy man just like um, and we're just supposed to be okay with that because you said." Politics are controlling the health. And I said, well, where's your oath? Where's your oath to do no harm? This is someone human's life. And eye contact. And uh, 
I also had a doctor come into the room right to try for his ivermectin because uh, he had a script for it at home. Come into the room and tell me that um, he would like to give him the ivermectin that he thinks it would love, but because of politics controlling the healthcare system, he had to think of his livelihood and his, and he, he said that right to me. Um, to which and you, you have all of, you have those conversations recorded, correct? Yeah, as I was going to say, is after after that is when I decided to go ahead conversations because um, no one would ever believe me otherwise. They would these conversations are happening in this place. Uh, so yeah, that doctor, he just I looked at him and sitting there beside your livelihood, or while you're sitting there, I want you to picture me here beside my livelihood, begging you know arm put you you put my husband's life above your, your paycheck and he I, I want people to soak this in this is this is um you cannot get your arms around this i mean you and i have experienced something that very few people have experienced and you just heard this you just heard a doctor just got she just heard the doctor literally told stacy that he needs to think about his paycheck versus her husband's life. So, you know, what does the Hippocratic Oath says, do no harm. Uh, this is a literal shredding of the Hippocratic Oath for money. Uh, this is why I said at the beginning, I'm so wound up because the public health emergency got re-upped again. And this is literally the excuse they use to murder people. And Stacy has the literal evidence um, as to as to the thinking that's going on. Uh, this is this is so evil. Uh, oh, Stacy, yeah. thank you. You have another. Do you want to share another example? I mean, I guess I had, had I had some with the nurses. I told her that I felt like one of the nurses. I said in a death camp, um, um, and she looked at me and said, "I agree." I hundred percent agree. She knew. She said she couldn't. She felt like there was some kind of an agenda. Uh, Ninja can't help these patients. And uh, I, 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 when I knew, I knew that they had to be recorded. Otherwise, no one would ever, ever believe it. So I looked up recording laws. And that's when I went forward with recording um, anything I could. I mean, there was even witnesses and where with Dr. Sharba when he came in and said that they had two nurses that came in, uh, I assumed to be witnesses in that conversation. And the one nurse looked shocked while the other one acted like she cared less. Um, and I mean, I was shaming the doctors. That was the only, I think the one time that like, rage came over for me because I knew my husband had heard that himself. He's laying there mentally aware, can't move, can't talk, and you, he has to put his livelihood in paycheck first. Um, oh, and I couldn't imagine what I was his voice that day for sure. Um, and that resulted the next day in a hospital administrator, and they took me down to a back room and proceeded to try to blackmail me uh, to stay quiet, um, putting in a threat, um, using a story that was made up, saying that they had seen me go and that would be a safety violation. They had and seen what? I, say that again. I, what did they say they saw? They had, Go ahead. Oh, so they had seen me 
going into other patients' rooms, and that was oh, okay. And so, and I told him I don't. Well, first I was combative, and said no, and I, well, I wouldn't be going into anyone else's room. I don't, I don't know anyone else here. Um, why would I? And the moment I went to go, go say, well, show me on camera where I did that because there's cameras throughout, and it clicked really what they're doing, um, because obviously they would know right away, and I would have been kicked out. Um, I would hope somebody would do that if they were doing that to my husband. Um, so they they were letting me, if you don't be quiet, we're going to use that story. And, and they even said, that's, if we say, that'll keep you from being in it loud back in until we're done with your husband. Uh, photos of my husband, video, or yeah, photos of my husband. And if I had an attorney, or either of those questions, and if I wasn't being detained, that I wanted to get back to my husband because I was fearful for it. So let them record that. <laughs> and then I just went back to the, I went back to my, my whole body was shaking, just realizing what I, I was up against, that this level of evil. <sighs> Don, can you play the, the second clip? And then I want to get Stacy's comment on the second clip. This is, addresses how, how uh, medical professionals can do this. This is also from the More than 70 years later, the question of how Germany's nurses became involved in these killings still intrigues historians. Well, it is, uh, of course, a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, I think, what happened there. But it is a very good example of you start one thing and then it leads to something a little worse and a little worse. So at first, if they were asked to hold a patient, while somebody else uh, did something, an injection or whatever, uh, they they could do that and they could say to themselves, I'm not one taking any action here. And then uh, from there, it's a shorter step to, well, you give the injection. Stacy, what, so that was obviously they're summarizing how could these nurses uh, kill these patients in World War II, but I mean, we're seeing it in real time today. What is your comment about that clip? Feels like real life, because I think the nurses feel a detachment um, that they're just obeying orders. I mean, I've had them say, say that line directly to me that if we don't obey, we'll lose our job. We'll lose our paycheck. Yeah, we've seen very few I, people you know, we have Nurse Aaron and Nurse Nicole, you know, they've come out publicly. But, I mean, there's been very few that have come out, uh, you know, as anybody, you know, in our case, for example, all the nurses who are involved with murdering Grace, none of them have come out to support us. Has anybody come out from uh, the hospital that murdered Ryan to support you? Um, <laughs> there's one nurse. Uh, she's, um, I think she's on the it's like she's she she know she, she's stuck with uh, not being able to go with the media because she's still there at the hospital. She has um, definitely knows that there's things going wrong. The hospital's doing and has uh, expressed that she's supportive and out. So well, I guess we got uh, that. That's that's a, that's a step in the right direction. I mean, I hope she is convicted uh, by the Holy Spirit to, to jump in. I mean, I, 
it's hard for me to grasp, but I mean, I have a different perspective, obviously. Um, no, it's hard for me to grasp to, to choose to do something wrong just for the paycheck. But yeah. I mean, it seems to be the majority. You know, I've studied a lot since Grace's murder. The Milgram obedience experiment seems to indicate that that's, that's really the rule versus the exception that people just follow along and obey. Uh, all right, Don, I want you to play the last clip. And then this clip is related to, it will not seem to be, but I wanna relate it to the experiments with ventilators because these ventilators are clearly experiments. So this is another clip out of Caring Corrupted. In what they call terminal experiments. And so they did low pressure studies where they took uh, concentration camp prisoners and put them into specially designed rooms where they sucked out the oxygen, let in the oxygen until their lungs exploded and they died in terminal experiments. So now we are, we're literally 36 months into COVID. This ventilator narrative was sold to us by President Trump under the War Powers Act. So factories were converted. You know, we were, we were programmed to think ventilators are one of the major tools that we needed for COVID. And so now we're 36 months into this, they're still using them because they're incentivized by the public health emergency. So I'm looking at this in the same light as that experiment uh, clip from, from Nazi Germany, that these ventilators, uh, it's a propaganda campaign and they are experimenting on human beings with ventilators. So Stacy, what do you, you think that that's accurate? What are your thoughts? Uh, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I, there is people, that clearly weren't even trained to know how to run a vent. Um, it was just going wrong with the whole ventilators. And, and from what I've heard, other um, doctors have admitted that they think nine out of 10 don't come off a vent once they're on it and push that. If they're not in there to save lives and, and to be for the patient's best interest, then what is uh, something is motivating them to use a form of treatment that has the fatal majority of them. So there has to be some kind of motive. And from what I hear, it's all financial. Well, we know that. I mean, obviously, if you're 36 months into something and nine out of 10 patients are killed when they're put on a ventilator, I mean, that's unconscionable to continue that. So we know from from the money trail that it's approximately a $300,000 uh, profit for the hospital when when somebody gets put on a ventilator have you you must have looked at the billings for Ryan I mean do you have a sense for how much the hospital received even before the government incentivized murder payments I haven't looked into all that but um, from what I hear from our just our, our state in general it's um, hundreds of thousands of dollars for per patient do you, I have a few questions in wrapping up that I just, I want to get your perspective on. Do you think that there is, that you're going to see justice in Ryan's case? Well, um, I know that uh, um, that's what God at least calls us to do is to try accountable, at least for, for on a sense of uh, law and according to the laws and, and the rest is in God's hands. And, um, what he will hold them accountable to. I, uh, I pray on it every day, every day, all day. I think this this just is like your new um, focus in 
life is um, Grace's voice as much as I am for Ryan. Uh, and it, it does, it consumes you. You don't, it, it's, it's shaped us, it's changed us and changed who we are. Um, we'll, we'll never believe that we saw in those hospitals. That's, uh, that's, that's right on. What, what have you seen to be the most surprising thing about sharing the story as far as where I'm getting at here is, are people believing you or do you have to get outside of the network of people that were your supposed friends to get people to really believe what's happening? Um, people believing, um, mainly too, because I had such strong evidence. Uh, so the people, People close, um, and so, so yeah, their eyes have been open to it. There's always some people. Uh, uh, it's almost like a safer place for them to think that they are mentally cruel, um, and you're praying that they wake up before, before they're in that same situation. Really bad way to to learn the truth, uh, but it's I would say mostly the support team in this. So I get more support than naysayers well that's a, that, that's a positive I uh, I haven't experienced that same thing but I'm glad to hear it's happened in in your case you know you have so much evidence it's it's just it's fantastic I I uh, was blown away by that when I first met you and you told me the story um, what what would you suggest for people being prepared so, I mean inevitably people still need to go to a hospital uh, so what would you suggest people do as far as preparation if they do need to go to a hospital? Um, I think if I had to do over uh, where you sign electronic paper or print out of everything that they're having you sign and put it in writing that you do the, the those protocol meds, um, the ventilator, date it, sign out of it with you with it so that way it's it's time stamped. I would have an advocate uh, out that can stand their ground and fight for you in case you something happens or you're not able to speak. Um, and uh, you need someone to have that mindset that you're up for debate. That it's not they're not going to have to. It's not up for question in the hospital to survive or not because that's exactly what the hospital thought they had over Ryan was that. They treated him like he was property owned, and that we were we were going to be begging for his life. Give it, and uh, so uh, again, have soak soak this in. They're treating a person like property. This has been the agenda. This has nothing to do with COVID. This got started with uh, when Obamacare was passed. I mean, then it became law that you they started treating you as property. But I mean, it was set up for. Um, well over a decade before that with Obama, you know, with Ezekiel Emanuel telling, telling the world that we need to treat people as property and certain people uh, shouldn't get care while some people should. And basically you're turning over your rights to the hospital system once you enter. So what Stacy's telling you, you gotta, you gotta process this. Uh, you have to stand on your rights and you can't assume that the doctor has your best interest at heart. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, Stacy, I'm gonna give you the last word. I do wanna share, share this because 
you know, you and I are in the hospital lane. Uh, you know, so I see COVID as three lanes. Number one is, of course, the what is this thing? You know, this poison that they have introduced to our society. So, you know, that's one debate. Of course, the debate that's getting most of the attention is is the <clears throat> vaccine bioweapon. And we're in the lane that's not getting any attention, which is the hospital mm -hmm. lane. And you can see why. I mean, if people came to grips with doctors literally murdering patients, I mean, they can't deal with that. It. It's, you know, you and I think about what we've had to be able to process to be able to even tell this story, our stories. I mean, you can't wrap your head around that as a person. That's what we've seen in, in trying to share this with people. Um, so what's my, what's my message is that, so if 10,000 people listen to this interview, what I challenge each one of you to do is to share it. Everybody has at least a hundred contacts on their phone. It'll take you to take the rumble link and click on it, share it via a link on via text on your phone. It'll take you 10 minutes. And I challenge everybody that is watching this to share it with a hundred people, because just think through what that means. If you share with a hundred people, that means 1 million people are going to hear a message that it is unlikely that they, they're not gonna hear it on CNN, they're not gonna hear it on Fox. Uh, the only way they're gonna hear this is with alternative media. So that that's my message. I, um, I, I just, I'm so thankful that you were willing to come on and share this. I mean, this story is, as I said at the beginning, is worse than Grace's. Uh, you know, it is, it is pure evil. So anyway, Stacy, I want you to have the last word. I want you to share the websites where people can help, anything that you want to say. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I guess my, my biggest, um, you know, Ryan at one point was given a drug by a doctor that stood up against the crowd and the taboo ivermectin um and it did work and if they want to say that that was a work for ryan um and if we're not out to achieve health and and uh, patients then what what is it that their goal is, is to achieve in these hospitals clearly it's not that who wants the help there i do have a give send go um and there is also a link to us helping as well fight these cases um which i can have you share that with on your site um and uh, that way if people want to help me uh now and it's hard with just my income because my business was greatly affected by our governor <laughs> so uh yeah anyway you can help but yeah that's the biggest takeaway is that they're out to achieve if they're not achieving life and what's best for these patients that they took away has been um then they're not out to achieve his best interest that's what we need to look well, into that's that's right on i mean the these these links that stacy mentioned will be in the show notes so you can can help her in in that way and i'd appreciate if you would uh, remember that the programming on a macro basis is to program us to not believe in God. And that's why all of this is happening. And the most important thing that you can deprogram yourself in is to take a look at a Bible, realize that Jesus, he was born, he died, he rose from the dead in order that 
our sins would be forgiven and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And, you know, ultimately I hope that what Stacy shared today will prick your heart and you, uh, you become deprogrammed relative to our godless society. So thank you very much, Stacy. I sure appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Scott. And you really got to work to get great. You need to work to get grace out of her shell. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>